tell Jack about the dowry. Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Welcome to the one-year anniversary of the Progress Texas Happy Hour. I, as always, am your host, Satvik Alawalia. Today, I'm joined by our advocacy director, Diana Gomez, our president, Ed Espinosa, and our very special guest, Cliff Walker of Seeker Strategies. Um, you know, I, I just read that about three hours ago, Beto announced that if he becomes governor, he's going to legalize marijuana. Uh, which got me more excited to vote for him in November than I was excited to vote for him uh, a few days ago. Uh, but since obviously we, we're not like Elon Musk, we're not smoking live or on the podcast, we do drink on the podcast. And I have a yep. semi-lovely homemade uh, margarita. It's in a mason jar because I'm weird from oh. Austin, uh, or at least I'm a transplant. <laughs> Cliff, what are you drinking? You know, I, I well, first of all, thank you for starting this off on a high note. Uh, I thought I'd be the first time with the dead. Yeah, sorry, Ed. sorry, Ed. Um, but you know, I know it's a little lame, but I'm drinking coffee. Mm. I'll remind oh. everyone that election night was two nights ago. True. So still, still building up my uh, my hydration. Dana, what are you sipping on? Um, I'm gonna let everyone take a wild guess as to what I have. Vodka coffee. <laughs> Truly. Which you did drink, which you did drink once. <laughs> I'll bring it back. I'll bring the vodka coffee back. Actually, Dan, I feel like you were probably drinking in Truly at our first Progress Texas happy hour a, a year mm, ago. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe uh, we can figure that out. And Ed, what are you drinking today? I have a, a Dallas Blonde from Deep Ellum Brewing Company in Deep Ellum, Dallas. And uh, actually, I think it's called Bombshell Blonde. And here is your weekly... ASMR. That was the bomb. That was really good. Was that? It was that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, before we dive into the primary, which is why everyone is listening to us, obviously, uh, it, it'd be nice to take a quick step back and, and look at what we've done over the past 47. 47! Wow, that's a lot of episodes. Off the happy hour. What, 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 what do you think were some of the highlights of things we got to talk about over the course of this, Diana? Um, about what flavor of truly i'm drinking on each episode <laughs> i feel like that's that's one of the highlights um i really like uh and i feel like this is general and this is probably a cheesy thing to say but i think this is a very you know politics can get really depressing what's going on in the world there's a lot of really intense stuff going on um but to but it's still important for people to know what's happening to know what's going on and to know that they can tune into us and hear us um, drunkenly talk about these things in as lighthearted a way as possible um, while also informing them um, and also letting folks know about the things they are able to do, that they aren't powerless, that they have, there's all these ways to, to participate um, in our democracy, there's ways that they can change the world. Um, I feel like that's one of my favorite, you know, I'm, I'm, that might be a cop-out, it's not like a favorite story, but more of a favorite thing that we do. <laughs> no, but that actually reminds me of one of my favorite episodes, when we had the the, uh, the abortion lawyer on, and we were talking about some oh, really yeah. heavy stuff, but he had a handle with him, and we just kept taking shots the entire episode uh, in solidarity with uh, all the Texans were being negatively impacted by Greg Abbott and his craziness. I, it, yeah. I think it was a big old, a big old handle of rum. Yeah. 
if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think he might have had to go into like a hearing or something right after that. So I hope no, it went I don't, well. I don't think that okay. Was, okay. I don't think that was the case. I was like, oh no. <laughs> uh, what about you, Ed? What was your favorite like thing that we covered here? When I look back, you know, I, I think it's all the stuff we talked about in the legislature because people don't really know what's happening at the legislature because it doesn't get a ton of coverage by the media. It's not on TV every night. It's in the newspapers, but it's just it, the drama doesn't unfold the same way in the news stories as it does when you're there. And to be able to hear from Wesley and Diana, who spent so much time in the Capitol building itself, and <clears throat> Diana in in the in the um, committee hearing when Briscoe Kane tried to replace the entire text of one bill as an amendment with the text from a completely different bill. This was the voter suppression bill that uh, Democrats broke quorum over and went to D.C. and is now one of the reasons we've had so many problems with voting in this past election. Like Diana and Wesley were there and they were in that room catching video of this as it was happening. And we had a couple of episodes on different things that happened from the Capitol. And so when I go back through our, our library of, of um, episodes, which anyone can see, whether you're, you're following us on Apple or an Anchor or wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher, uh, I, I look through some of these and, and these are the things that stand out to me. And there's one particular line that we actually, that Diana said in an episode that became the name of that episode that said, we're basically governed by a child. And oh, yeah. <laughs> that's talking about Greg Abbott and his responses to different things around the state and at the legislature. And it still holds true today. We're still governed by a child. For now. Yeah. Maybe things will For change. For now. But we all know. have the power to change that. That's right. Yeah. Cliff, what, um, you know, I, 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 I assume and I hope that you've listened to our podcast before joining us as a very special guest. <laughs> but in general, what do you, th do you think, like, wh wh where do you see the value in, like, being able to have these messages on podcasts and different mediums to reach voters? Well, Sadiq, uh, first I'll say, you know, having been a, you know, fairly religious watcher of the podcast over the last year, I'm glad I finally merited an invitation <laughs> to join the podcast. I, I figure you are saving me for the spectacular one-year anniversary, so... Uh, we actually I'll, have an uh, email where we wrote that. We're like, we're going to get Cliff for the one-year anniversary because he's <laughs> we know he's listening to every episode. In the conceptual phase. It's sort of like uh, the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe, and this is just when I fit in to right. the master plan. Um, but, you know, seriously, I, I what we're facing right now is news coming in from all different directions. And for those of us who are uh, religious followers of the news, who are in the, uh, you know, whose, whose job it is, it's our, not just our vocation, it's our avocation um, to um, make sure that we're tracking all the news that's coming in from federal, state, and local. Uh, we forget sometimes how overwhelming it can be for you know, people who are just living their lives and aren't completely immersed in this every day. So I think it's especially crucial now that, you know, now that folks are cutting the cables, uh, we're not necessarily all tuning in to network news every night uh, to have a variety of different media sources uh, across different platforms and with different voices. So I, I think what you all are doing is is crucial. Uh, I love that this has built up over the last year and excited to see what uh, is going to come from it in the year to come. 
I mean, no surprise that you had such a great insight there. That's absolutely right that like audiences now can go wherever they want for information. And so it's on us to make sure that we're in the different places for different demographics, creating the content in ways that they can digest easily. And honestly, podcasting is so easy because you can go on a run, you can go grocery shopping, you can be in your car and it's there with you whenever you want it. And that's actually one of the things I hear from people that are like, you know, I, I listen to it on my commute. I listen to it when I'm on the trail or when I'm walking the dog. And, you know, in addition to kind of talking about current events, because we're not just a, we're not really just a news podcast, we're really more about like diving into the issues and talking about what the key messages are on those issues and what the progressive angle is on, is on it and what it means for Texas, right? Like, I remember getting a call from a reporter last fall, and we'll talk more, uh, this, this applies to our conversation about the primary as well, but this reporter said, what does the 2022 election mean for progressives? What does it mean for Democrats? Besides like the winning and losing, which obviously is what a primary and a general election is about, what is the larger issue here? And it really got me thinking like, well, for us, it's about protecting the gains we've made over the last three election cycles. And when you look at the election through that lens, it means something a little, but it's a little more multi-dimensional than just the wins and losses on that day of the election. Another thing that I, I looking back through some of these here that I, I really enjoyed was the interviews that we've had with different people. You know, we've had lawmakers on, Ana Marie Ramos from Dallas, uh, we have had uh, candidates on. We had Susan Hayes, our now nominee for uh, agriculture commissioner statewide. Rochelle Garza, who's in a runoff for attorney general. We had the head of Planned Parenthood Texas Votes, Diana Lamone Mercado, also on to talk about some of the important issues that she's working on. And I think that bringing those voices to the, to the table and sharing them with our audience around the state, which ever-growing audience, by the way, thank you, everybody. That's been one of the things that I have really enjoyed about this is being able to amplify those voices. I love when you even surprised us with uh, Jasmine Crockett appearance. Um, <laughs> she was someone also who uh, is a candidate uh, uh, this year, but then also before was just such a rock star during the legislative session, uh, speaking out uh, you know, for Black Lives, for her constituents, uh, and just speaking out in general for voting rights, for uh, reproductive abortion rights. It was just amazing to see uh, someone so uh, vocal like that. And social uh, media loved her. She had an amazing TikTok account. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she was also all over the news, uh, uh, too. And so it was, I, th I think we were all starstruck, especially because we were surprised and had no idea she was uh, coming on. But starstruck in a in a Texas politics type of way. Well, and a lot of things we've talked about, like one of, one of the, some of the issues we covered was the Democratic quorum break out in D.C. And to get some of the intel that we were sharing with our listeners wasn't just from the papers, and it couldn't be from our eyes and ears on the ground, because I know that you and Wesley were there for a little while, but like most, for the most part, we were not at the quorum break. But Cliff, you were. And like the conversations that I would be able to have with you about what's happening there really kind of helped inform what we were sharing with people here. And Cliff, you, I mean, had some, I'm sure you have some pretty vivid memories from that, right? Uh, I do. I do have some vivid memories of the nearly 40 days spent um, living out of the Washington, uh, Washington Plaza Hotel with, um, you know, 50-ish of my favorite legislative pals uh, and a whole group of staff, dozens of staff who were coming in and out um, you know, funny that you mentioned Jasmine, I, I think she and a number of other folks who, um, you know, really took 
advantage in the absolute best way of the fact that for the very first time, we spent so much national time talking about what Texas legislators were doing. I mean, when was the last mm, time that yeah. you, you yeah. saw a, a Texas state house member talking about Texas legislative business on uh, primetime cable news? And for the better part of two months, and even still with some frequency, you know, you'll see uh, a legislator for, for a couple of months, it was on every single major cable news station, prime time every single night, there was at least one Texas legislator telling their story. And you know, I just rec- remember seeing some folks who, you know, saw this as an opportunity to, to use this platform to communicate what was going on in the state and, uh, you know, what the impact was going to be, which we, you know, just witnessed in the last couple of weeks, which I know that we're going to talk about, or not the last couple of weeks, I guess that was the day before yesterday. Um, <laughs> I, what is time? Um, but We measure uh, it in dog ears, Cliff. It feels like we're... We're dog tired. Is that a phrase? It is a phrase. It is now. <laughs> it, it was. Uh, um, I'll, I'll save you there, Ed. It was. It was exceptional Thanks. to uh, <laughs> to watch uh, folks like Jasmine. I just remember seeing her sitting down in the hotel and in a in one of the conference rooms, on the ground, back up against the wall, uh, with her her can- her phone, just zooming into various progressive groups across the country who were just thirsty to hear the story. And, you know, like I, I've been involved in Texas politics for a little over 15 years. Um, and, you know, I, I followed the state legislature. It was a big part of what I've, I've done here in the state. And, you know, they, there were folks who I thought if only the world could see State Representative Sinfronia Thompson, uh, mm. the world would be inspired. And it was beautiful to be able to uh, to to have them have their well-earned time in the spotlight. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And that's why we do this podcast. We can share these kinds of stories. We know. can. And I, I'll tell you, um, the stories, the analysis, the personalities, I think are good. I, I go back and I, I think to myself that, you know, there's there's the three of us. There's me, Diana, and Sophic, which have been a, a lot of these episodes. But in other episodes, we've had uh, Glenn Smith join us. Mm-hmm. Wesley Story, our uh, communications director, is one of our regulars. Brett Isaacs, our finance person, has also joined us from time to time. And then, uh, did I mention producer Chris? Producer Chris uh-huh. has also been on with us before, Chris Mosier. And that, in addition to our guests, allows us to bring a rotating cast of folks in that kind of keeps it interesting, you know? L- lets people know what the, the personalities are who work in this business, who are out there fighting for people every day, and uh, allows us to bring varying perspectives into the conversations each week. And I know it's it's uh, insightful for me. It's, it makes it a little more fun for me as well as a participant. And I hope it is as interesting to our listeners too. Yeah, honestly, as the guy in the background who does like emails and social, I don't even read the news. I just listen to this podcast in real time. And then I base my <laughs> don't entire... Say uh, I, don't say that. Just, I definitely read the Tribune and all that stuff every day. Uh, <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, read best of the week. At least read best of the week. Yeah. I do because I write it. And so I've already <laughs> read it. <laughs> As Cliff said, a few weeks ago in dog weeks uh, was the primary, a.k.a. it was actually on Tuesday. Uh, and a lot of crazy stuff happened. And we're going to talk to you all about it. Um, Ed, what was the story with like turnout here? So the story early on, I'd like to bring Cliff into this as well. The story early on was that turnout was very low in Texas. And it was. It started off 
anemic. But towards the end of early vote, we saw that turnout spike. And the early vote in this election in 2022 was higher than the early vote in 2018. I'm talking about raw vote totals here. I'm gonna to get to percentages in a second, but in terms of the raw actual votes, it was higher in 2022 than it was in 2018. And then on election day, it was also, I believe, slightly higher. So the overall turnout for Democrats and for Republicans was higher in 2022 than it was in 2018, which is surprising because this was a very quiet primary. It was nothing like it was four years ago or even two years ago in the presidential race. However, going back to what I was saying about percentages, there are a lot more registered voters in Texas now. And so by voting age population and by registered voters, we're actually down a little bit from 2018. Not much, but a little bit. And that's, that is kind of the story of Texas when it comes to elections. Even years like 2018 and 2022, where we had record turnout, we're still a low voting state, right? It's like you could have record turnout that gets you to like 20% of the vote. And that, it, it, that might be a record turnout, but like, is that, <laughs> it's 20%. You can see just a lot of room to improve upon that 20% right. at that point. And by the way, I don't know what our total turnout is. I'll have to look that up here in a second. But it was, uh, it was not 20%. It was, I think, closer to 15%. We have a ways to go. The, the storyline that I think is missed here is even though these voters showed up, there were a lot of voters who tried to vote who were not able to vote. And it's entirely because of the laws that were passed by the legislature last session. We heard early on about thousands of ballot, tens of thousands of ballot applications getting rejected for people who wanted to vote by mail. I'm not sure we'll ever know exactly how many of those ballots were rejected. We have an idea, but we, and we do know it's in the tens, the range of tens of thousands. So that that's a problem. And hopefully we can work our way through the courts to get that addressed so that people can can have uh, their freedom to vote. Yeah. The the only thing I would add beyond that one plus one on all of that, uh, the only thing that I'd add is, you know, for context sake is there's a big discussion every two years. Uh, I'm, you know, old enough to have been here for a couple of primaries there's a big discussion every few years about how low primary turnout is. And it is a truth that primary turnout is always somewhat lower than general election turnout. Um, but I think a thing to remember, because there's a lot of, you know, punditry coming from, you know, candidly, a lot of it coming from the right that, well, look at all of this energy on one side and, and look at the energy on the other side not being as robust. Where I'm hard pressed to find, and I challenge anyone to find primary turnout that correlates with general election turnout. You know, primaries are their own animal, general elections are their own animal. So, of course, we want to see turnout uh, as high as possible in as many elections as possible, but I don't think I would close the book on high turnout on either side going into November. Uh, the only other thing I would add beyond that, in, in building off of what you talked about on uh, uh, Senate Bill 1, the anti-voter bill that passed uh, in spite of the Democrats' heroic effort in uh, posting up in D.C. to push Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, and the rest of the Senate to move on voting rights. Uh, well, the bill did pass, and this is the first election that has taken place 
after that bill. And right now, you're right. I think it's going to take us a while to figure out precisely what the impacts are. But in addition to the mail ballot voters, let's let's take a, just a quick sec to remind ourselves who a lot of these folks are. In order to vote by mail in Texas, you know, there was a conversation about making it accessible to everyone in the height of the pandemic. You know, the governing party said no. Um, and uh, so we've got to limit it to the populations that could do it. So it's senior citizens, it's people with disabilities, and anyone who's outside of the county that they vote in during the voting period. But the people who are being turned away, who are having their mail ballot applications denied, who are having their ballots rejected, these are largely folks who uh, don't have the means, don't have the, at times, physical wherewithal to get themselves to the poll to go vote in person. And they're being told late in the process that your vote is not accepted. There are these horrific stories of senior citizens, uh, World War II veterans, uh, you know, African-Americans who paid the poll tax uh, in, a, in a bygone era who have voted in every single election. But this is the one that they have been suppressed in. So I, I look forward to extensive research and, and I, an extensive conversation on how we can make sure that uh, we, we work our way around these challenges and, and push for better laws when Beto's governor. A hundred percent. And I think, um, Cliff, a lot of what you're, you mentioned is that there are a lot of folks that, you know, this was the very first time their, their vote had been suppressed. And there were a lot of stories, um, you know, not as a few stories in the news talking about people coming across um, some of these instances where they were turned away and folks not being able to vote. And I think even before that, when you know, this bill was going through the ledge, you know, we're hearing that it's going to be harder to vote. And um, it's really important for folks to know in this primary and especially going into uh, the November election, because this law will still exist, right, Um, is knowing that despite hearing, you know, these stories uh, that Texans are resilient, we don't like folks to mess with us, especially our our voting rights, um, because it's not just about the right to vote, right, it's about the right um, of other things that are on the ballot, the right to an abortion, you know, the, the, the right to a fair education, you know, healthcare, so many things that a lot of these candidates who are on these ballots uh, represent. And know that when you are jumping through all those hoops uh, that the governing party has, has created, that it is an act of defiance. It is an act of necessary defiance to still go out and make your voice heard and to bring your family and your friends with you and to resist this suppression. Powerfully said. Um, I've looked up the turnout numbers now. So for 2022, the turnout was 17.5%. It's actually not bad. The turnout in 2018 was 17.2%. So overall, turnout was up three-tenths of a point, uh, which is is, uh, good in that it's slightly higher. But we also have nearly, we have about 2 million more registered voters again. So that 17.5% is... Uh, even larger than that 17.2%, given that there's so many more registered voters. Now, diving into those numbers a little bit more, Republican turnout was up about a point. They had about 10.2% in the last uh, midterm primary. This time it was about 11.3%. Democrats were about 7% in the 2018 primary. This time they were at about 6.2%. So they're down about a point. One was up about a point. In the grand scheme of things, like Cliff said, Primaries don't tell us what the general election is going to be like. 
Primaries tell us, and that, that's what the, certainly what they don't tell us. What they do tell us is what is the enthusiasm like in your party? And here you can see it's very similar to what it was four years ago. The other thing it tells us, and this is probably the most important point, is did your party have competitive elections where campaigns spent money and drove turnout? And on this in this election, Republicans had a lot more primaries that were competitive because they had a lot of incumbents being challenged by outsiders. And Democrats didn't have that many primaries at the local level. I want to say that out of like the 66 Democrats we have, that there might have been like six or seven that had competitive primaries. And the rest were not, there weren't as many. I mean, the incumbents, most voters seem to be pretty happy with the incumbents. And I think that that explains some of the numbers that we're seeing here. Having lived in Texas during Trump and now during Biden, I remember that like during Trump's time, they never really talked about like, oh, this stuff will be negatively affecting Republican turnout. But it feels like there's often stories about like, Biden X, blah, 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 this is not good for Dems, which doesn't really seem to be the case based on your analysis. So what do, what, what do progressives have to do to like really excite the base going into November? I mean, we, we got to talk about Beto, right? Like everybody wants to hear about how is this going to affect the ticket? And Beto is a very good campaigner. He builds very good organizations. It's not the same as it was in 2018. The world's not the same as it was in 2018. Okay. But it's, you know, we're fortunate to have a candidate um, waving the progress, a, a Democratic candidate waving the progressive flag, who is well funded and has good name recognition. Those are two things that are really important in this race. What he needs to be able to do is not only consolidate Democrats, which, by the way, he did. Um, remember, he got like sixty percent of the vote in the twenty eighteen primary. He got ninety three percent of the vote in the twenty twenty two primary. Ed, can, um, I, can I share a quick fact uh, while, while you're making that point? You know, I, I did some research on this um, because I saw the results were so high. You know, he was in a six-way primary. I looked back to contested Democratic primaries, and I only got back as far as 1972. But I could not find one where in a contested primary, someone got as, as uh, performed as well as Beto did this year. Mm-hmm. And, and compare that to the fact that Abbott, one out of three Republicans, voted against Greg Abbott. Yeah, Democratic unity seems, it seems like Democrats um, who, you know, voters are smart. If there's a contested race, they know to show up. Uh, if the race is not particularly contested, then, you know, yeah, we we make it to the polls because it's the right thing to do. But there isn't that same level of urgency, which makes intuitive sense. But the uh, the folks who did show up, it's clear that, you know, there there is a desire for a strong champion. Uh, for someone who can raise resources, who can aggressively campaign. Uh, and the sense that I get from it, the read that I get, is that, you know, on the progressive side, folks seem unified and seem very serious about this race. And that's, I know we're going to dive into the Republican side, into the uh, goat rodeo on the other <laughs> side, um, but it doesn't seem to be the same uh, in tone. Before we get to that, the goat rodeo, um, the bridge between the Democrats and the Republicans are the independents. And I want to bring Diana in here because Diana, I think what you're, one of the things we saw over the past year was not only was Greg Abbott losing independents by 20 points, but we're seeing a lot of people come out in favor of issues that they normally may not show up for. In other words, the extremity we saw on the abortion issue, the 
Republicans pushing for permitless carry after so many mass shootings when they said they promised to do something for gun safety reform. It's not only, and there's so many other issues, right? Like those are just two, guns and abortion are always the two that come in my mind. Of course, there's voting rights, there's LGBT equality, there's so many other things. But it's bringing independence around to the Democratic side, which has been a big issue in Texas. Diana, I know that you've seen like a lot of non-traditional, not just non-traditional voters, but like non-traditional activists showing up, speaking up. Can you, you tell us a little bit about who you encountered at the Capitol or who you're seeing in these coalition spaces or in any other events that you go to? And it's been a pandemic, but to the event that you're, the extent you've been at events or online, I, I think it's been quite interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, even folks that might have you know, it's it's really hard. I think your average everyday Texan, unfortunately, doesn't really pay attention to what's going on in the legislature. And that's not because they don't care, but it's because, you know, they do a lot of stuff in secret, right? They make a lot of votes in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, But a lot of folks, especially after SB 8 passed, after those voter suppression uh, bill was passed, you know, there are a lot of folks who said, oh my God, I want to participate. Um, we have been uh, a part of listening in to um, a lot of, you know, different focus groups of people who said, this is the first time I'm going to turn out and vote because now I see what those, you know, a lot of terrible politicians, uh, not all of them, but, a, you know, a good number of them in the Capitol are doing with our with our rights to what we're going to do with our own bodies. Um, and, you know, there's a, you know, there are some folks who don't want to bring up abortion, but abortion and, and other issues, Republicans have made these things that aren't you know, emergency issues, they've hyperly like politicized them um, to a point where, you know, abortion is basic health care. It's essential health care. It's not something that should be uh, politicized or demons, uh, demonized. But now a lot of folks, a lot of Texans are, are, are seeing that and they don't like that. And there are a lot of folks who consider themselves independents, even some Republicans saying things are going way too extreme because there are uh, there's a small amount of super far-right extremists that are taking control of the capital of these laws that are passed. And there are a lot of folks, again, that are independents, haven't been uh, politically uh, involved before, but now turning up and ready to turn out in the polls. And we know it's all distraction. Yes. And the voters know it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's why, uh, as I mentioned at the top, you know, Beto saying something like, let's legalize marijuana, like that is a cross-partisan thing that everyone wants, right? Like, it's a win, 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 win. Um, medically, taxation, uh, just like the freedom to do something with like, like we can drink, but we can't smoke. Tourism. Huh? Tourism. I mean, I go to Colorado just for <laughs> the skiing. Um. <laughs> and the baseball, right. Um, well, I think you're right, like, for uh, a con uh, a state, we're not a country, even though some people might want us to be a country. Uh, for a state that talks about freedom so much, like all that Abbott and his cronies have done is like make us less free for the past, I mean, I don't know how long he's been governor, eight years or something, but it's like, this is not good. And I think people are starting to see that and saying, we got to do something about it. <laughs> Producer Chris is writing secede in the chat. <laughs> oh uh, <laughs> secede from our governor. Oh it? my God! Yeah. <laughs> actually, we should exile him because I actually really love Texans. I just don't love the Republican leadership. Yeah. They can go somewhere else. You think about like a state leader that's lying to his people, is misleading them with propaganda and and pushing extreme policies that no one wants, and you're like, is is that Vladimir Putin or is it is it Governor Abbott? 
Yeah. Because it could go either way. He's become so unpopular that he's even so unpopular outside of the state. I saw a lot of people on Twitter the other day because there's a really popular show happening right now called Abbott Elementary, saying Abbott, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Elementary, Abbott Elementary is the only good Abbott in this entire country right now. <laughs> also, I think it's like worth noting that in a state where, which is like very like anti-union, like they're trying to unionize at the border because of how bad Abbott is as a leader, right? Like Operation Lone Star, which is a complete disaster uh, and a completely unnecessary. Like those folks are trying to unionize because they're like, this guy sucks. And I think, you know, I think there, there, was, there was a poll that said like 90% of Texans think the state's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. It is. 92%. 92%. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, let, <laughs> so let's talk about uh, what happened to Abbott in the primary. You know, he was uh, really spiking the football. And just, you know, the, some of the commentators were talking about, like, how strong how strong the victory was. And I'm like, you're a sitting governor who just lost a third of the Republican vote to a bunch of nobodies. Well, maybe not a bunch of nobodies. One of the guys was named Rick Perry, although it wasn't that Rick Perry. <laughs> But we're not sure that a lot of these voters know who they're voting for anyway. Uh, he lost a third of the vote. That can't be overlooked. And and I think that a lot of it is that some of them are upset because he's not too conservative. Some of them are upset because he is too conservative. I just think the party has become so obsessed with Trump and Trumpism that they really don't know who they are, or what their like compass is anymore. Yeah, you know, there, there are certain stories that you see where uh, national reporters dig in really deep into groups of people. And we saw this a lot after the 2016 general election when you saw reporters flying into the Midwest, you know, let's go to a diner in Iowa. Uh, The white working class has transitioned in a significant way. Let's try to understand this community. And we've seen a lot of this in Texas. And I I know that uh, I figure we will likely talk about the border and about the uh, the Rio Grande Valley um, in this conversation, but we've seen New York Times, Washington Post reporters, a lot of Beltway press flying in and focusing on this community and on the sort of nascent Republican Party that's being built. But the the full story about what's happening on the Republican side extends a lot more than than the you know to be candid, the sort of light coverage that we're getting in South Texas. The you know, the kind of superficial coverage that we're getting in South Texas, it's a party that's in complete disarray. And I'm not, I find it challenging. I find it frustrating uh, when I read the press and I watch, you know, the the, uh, news coverage nationally about how much this isn't part of the discussion. Yes, there's great diversity in the the Democratic Party. Uh, There always has been. But on the Republican side, you've got I'll, I'll cite Trump's own pollster, Tony Fabrizio, who um, released a, 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 a survey, a, a typology of the various groups within the Republican Party last year and has been tracking these. And, they're, you know, he claims five distinct groups, some who are Trump overall, some who are Republican Party over Trump, uh, some who are never Trumpers, which is a very small percentage. Uh, and then there's the Infowars uh, coalition within the Republican Party. And these, and to qualify, it's according to him, around 15% of the Republican Party. And to qualify to be in that group, you have to have five conspiracy theories that you believe in. So if you're only at four, you don't even make it into that group. So I'm only at two. That, 
<laughs> some way to go it. You got some ways to go. Um, but, but th- so this is a party that is, uh, not, not only I would say in, but in existential threat, just in, in, in terms of managing a party organization, having managed a party organization, it's a mess. It's a mess. It doesn't surprise me that only a third of, uh, that a, a whole third of, of Republican voters, uh, voted against Abbott. You know, Abbott's support in his primary, his first primary when he was elected governor, exceeded 90% as well. He had very high support. He has bled significant Republican support, and it's only after people have experienced his governance. (laughs) (laughs) Only after they got to know him. (laughs) Um, All right, so they're off to the general election. Um, The question was, what do Democrats need to do? What do progressives need to do to be successful in Texas? Obviously, consolidate the base. It looks like Beto has done that. Needs to win over independence, which I think we're at an interesting moment where, like, the independents support the progressive issues, but they're still leaning for conservative candidates, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's Texas politics. It's not supposed to. Um, But it shows that we've got some work to do there. And we had a a discussion a a little while ago about infrastructure when we were right before we went on, on the podcast here. Um, we can get to that in a minute, but I want to talk about some of the other races. Sotvik, we have a couple of other races on our list here, right? Yes. Uh, you know, the two other big ones that we're thinking about right now are attorney general and lieutenant governor. Um, in both of those, we're headed into runoffs, and it will be interesting to see how things play out over the next, uh, up through May. Um, I have to say, I'm pretty excited that Rochelle Garza made it into the runoff because we had her on the show a few weeks ago, and uh, just her work in the abortion space is like so inspiring. Um, it'll be interesting to see how she's able to play with that experience, opposed to someone like indi- multiple, multiple times indicted Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's been working on like destroying reproductive rights in Texas. Um, what do y'all see happening in that race? You know, I, I, I just want to throw some quick shade. I don't think I have a particularly you know astounding point to make, but I had I dreamt. Love it. I dreamt at the start of this election cycle for one thing, and that is a toxic, terrible primary between a Bush and a Paxton. (laughs) I had one thing that I wanted to see from the other side. Just please give me that. And now we can really see who they are. It's it's amazing to see that less than 48 hours from uh, the polls closing on Tuesday, they are just, it's, they're 100% in campaign mode and already at each other's throats. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Republican primaries, where Cliff's dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> and a part of that um, beautiful toxicity that we love to watch, just like a reality show, even though it's real life, unfortunately, um, was uh, Bush uh, letting folks know that he was going to reach out to Trump, uh, the same Trump who had talked so much crap about his family, um, to see if he would like take away his endorsement of Paxton and, and give it to him. I just think that level of sad groveling is so entertaining to watch. Those are the two biggest wings in the Republican Party. You have the people who are pre-groveled and the people who are post-groveled. You know, the, the ones who are playing a little catch-up on the groveling to Trump. Does that mean it makes sense? Um, there's no policy. The only policy is power. And all power flows from, you know, the fellow at the top. And owning the lips. You can't forget that. You gotta own the lips. 
Even if it blacks out the entire state, you got to own us. Attorney General Ken Paxton has been indicted twice. Recently, his staff walked out on him. Uh, Sorry, he didn't walk out on him. They turned on him. He reported him for some uh, malfeasance with a developer in Austin. And there was uh, a mistress involved, I believe. I don't know which side where where that person fell. Um, But the staff reported him, and then he fired the staff. He fired the whistleblowers. I want to know how long it is before Bush gets that former staff into a commercial to (laughs) talk about Ken Paxton. So that's one issue. But Paxton can't just make this issue about Paxton because that's a losing proposition for him. Remember, Paxton, if Abbott lost a third of all Republican voters in his primary, Paxton only got 40 percent. So he he lost a lot of voters in that as Mm. well, including his home county of Collin County. So Paxton's got to make this about Bush. Well, Bush has got some issues as well. In the 2018 re-election for land commissioner, this is another obscure office we'll get to in a second here, but when he was running for re-election, we discovered that George P. Bush had a secret mansion, a mansion that no one knew about, that was bought, I think the down payment of it was bought on a loan that his wife had received from her boss, which was against the law, which why do Bushes need loans? Yeah, I don't know. They're so rich. Mm-hmm. But this was like a secret mansion. He has a string of nonprofits that he has worked with on the management of the Alamo. Those have been a disaster. Like he's got plenty of problems for Paxton to go after too. I don't know if they're as big as being twice indicted. Obviously they're not indictments, but you know, he's got some things to throw back at him. It's gonna get ugly. It's going to get fun. Yes. Actually, <laughs> it's going to get fun. <laughs> I actually can't wait till they start using TikTok to talk about how bad Paxton was with the old staffers. Them doing like little TikTok <laughs> dances while like pointing at things that Paxton has done. Oh, you're, you're, you're speaking my language, they said. <laughs> yeah, like, if, if I can briefly go back to that dream and then play pundit a little bit. <laughs> I think it is, I find it hard, you know, the way that these primaries tend to go and the way I would expect this one would go. I, I think Bush is certainly the underdog here, you know, in spite of the fact that Paxton is, you know, multiply indicted, uh, that, you know, his staff has walked out because of corruption. Um, and his senior staff, I imagine, will be telling their story, as you said, very soon. Um, and in all of the ideological issues that Paxton has decided to play on, you know, Dinah, you, you talked about the freedoms that are under assault uh, in the state of Texas. Well, you know, we talk about uh, states as being laboratories of, of ideas, laboratories for policy. Um, you know, Texas has been Bad a laboratory here. for autocracy. Uh, to quote David Pepper, the former Ohio Democratic chair, to give him a little plug for his book, which is actually quite good. Um, but Texas has led the way in the worst things happening across the country. And Paxson has been a champion on that. So uh, after spending millions of his campaign kitty, over the next couple months and defending the fact that, yes, I, I have maybe committed some crimes, but Trump says I'm cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to, uh, you know, I think the, the candidates that we have in the primary and the runoff uh, on the other side are credible and charismatic. I'm excited for the general election. Um, let's talk about the candidates on the other side. So on the Democratic side, Rochelle Garza came in first with 43 percent. I'm looking at the returns right now. It's still a very tight race between Joe Jaworski and Lee Merritt. And what's interesting here is that, like, 
Lee Merritt is closing in. Like he's currently about 1,400 votes behind Joe Jaworski. And I, I know they're still counting absentee ballots and maybe military ballots, but in a state where, where in a primary where a million votes were cast, like 1,400 is not that many. We don't know what this is going to look like. And just to, to clarify for listeners and viewers, um, and if folks correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you need at least 50%, right, of the vote in a primary um, election to be considered for the Democrat as the Democratic candidate in that race in November. But for folks who didn't make it that far, what happens is that the top two vote getters go into what's called a runoff election. And that is supposed to happen uh, May 24th, I believe. And what's really cool about that is that there's a, a window open now for folks who, to register to vote if they haven't been registered yet. Um, that deadline is sometime in April. You can go to our website, Go Vote Texas. Um, to to check out all of of those dates, um, but that so there's another race happening, and you know, and, and those are the ones we're talking about the the runoffs. We're one of only ten states that still does runoff elections. <sighs> uh, a lot of states have figured out a way around this. They either just accept the plurality of the um, of the result to produce a nominee. Uh, some localities have instant runoff voting or other some other type of ranked choice voting. Uh, what a concept. How <laughs> nice would it be for us to have something like that to get this all done at one time? But that's not the way we do it. I think the, the other race that we wanted to talk about was for Lieutenant Governor Ed. Um, what's going on there? In the race for Lieutenant Governor, we have Mike Collier, who was the nominee in 2018. Came in first place with about 40% of the vote. You had a very close race between the other two candidates, Carla Braley and Michelle Beckley. They both got just under 30%. I think Mike Collier might have got around like 42%. And I think that Beckley and Braley got like 29 and 28% respectively. So it's very close. Uh, but the race has been called for Michelle Beckley, who is a state rep out of Denton. So... They're going to go to a runoff, the, the May 24th runoff election between those two. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> Cliff, uh, Diana, anything else to, to add? <laughs> One thing I, I did want to share is that with the exception, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, with the exception of the lieutenant governor race, um, it looks like all the other races that are in runoffs, and there's a lot, folks. Like, it is um, the attorney general race, we got comptroller, you know, uh, Railroad and even a lot of co congressional races or some congressional races as well, um, but in in the top ones that are that are statewide, um, most of them have a Latino or a Latina as one of the two runoff uh, folks, and I feel like that's just so fascinating to me, and it just goes to show how uh, a lot of voters in Texas, um, uh, you know, turn out to vote and, and really want that representation to be shown in the leadership that we'll have in our state. Absolutely. And, and actually, thank you for bringing that up because there's one uh, other topic, you know, Cliff kind of mentioned it regarding South Texas and the narrative around there. But Dana, you know, earlier before we, were, we, we went live, uh, you were talking about like, what is behind the story that Republicans are trying to tell about South Texas? And I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah. And I know Ed will, you know, talk uh, you know more about that as well. But um, I, I really love what, uh, you know, Cliff was talking about and, and the type of, of coverage that that happens around, 
you know, the elusive Latino vote in Texas. And one thing that I find particularly annoying about that is that a lot of these conversations happen by, you know, these big media groups, um, a lot of times folks that aren't Latinos talking about it as well, and they do it after the results come out. And they do it, you know, dissecting what could happen. And there's a lot of thought pieces and opinion pieces. What could it be? Um, instead of, you know, doing that work beforehand, you know, in Texas, connecting with uh, those people, especially um, Latinos and Latinas um, in, in South Texas, and um, talking about, um, I, I really love the, the word you use, Cliff, is just this superficial coverage of this uh, false, honestly, narrative of uh, Republicans taking over the, the valley and that, you know, everyone down there is Republican, which um, we all know, you know, isn't true. Um, and, you know, one way to look at that is, is if you look up how Bernie performed, just one example of how Bernie performed in the Rio Grande Valley is that he won the Rio Grande Valley. All those, uh, you know, uh, counties turned out for him, um, you know, including other other counties. But that's someone, and, and I use him as an example, um, because who's extremely, you know, progressive, and there are a lot of young Latinos and Latinas, you know, in the Rio Grande Valley that are progressive. They are there, and they want to turn out. They want to turn out for uh, progressives who are not just uh, progressives in name only, but that are true progressives. Yeah, just a quick, very quick thought on this. You know, one again, plus one, everything you said, uh, Dana. I, I, I've been. Um, following the the press about the valley and again there's there's this cottage industry of national reporters who are writing the same story over and over again if i have to read another i may just claw my eyes out but <laughs> uh barring that um you know the the national narrative the the narrative that we want to place everything into you know it's moderates versus progressives it's you know is our latino voters now republicans or more republican you know, I, I think what we're seeing in the Valley is a, a couple things and very curious to get your take on this. Um, all of you all. Uh, one, you've got the intersection of not just a sort of demogra- a demographic enclave. You know, the Valley is 95 plus percent Latino uh, in, in every county. But there's also a rural element to it. And as we know, rural voters uh, at times may lean a bit more conservative. So it, it doesn't surprise me that there are some conservative voters in the Valley. There always have been. Uh, I, I think what we've historically seen is that the party that tended to have control is a Democratic Party. So everyone just kind of voted in that one party. But what we have now are candidates who are being fielded on the Republican side. So I don't think it's a matter that the Valley is becoming more conservative. I think that it's more contested. Now there are options, there are candidates who are running, they're being funded, and many of them, frankly, are quite weird. It's not like they're running for great <laughs> They're not sending their best people. Uh, but, oh, that's terrible. Uh, but, but uh, you know, these are candidates that have real funding behind them, and mm-hmm. I, I think this can be an opportunity for progressives. Now we're, we're not going to be able to look at certain communities nor should we ever have looked at these communities, but we're going to have to stop looking at these communities as turnout communities. Everyone deserves to be persuaded. Everyone deserves to have their vote courted. Yes. And now we're going to have to be more intentional about it. I think it's a good thing. You know, I've talked about before, I, I've worked in Latino communities uh, since I started in politics um, in my, my hometown of North Long Beach, California, uh, from East Las Vegas, Nevada, 
to New Mexico and Colorado, and of course here in Texas. And the thing is, is that no matter where you go, our community is a base vote community in part and a persuasion vote community in part. It is not a monolithic community by any means. And sometimes I get calls from national reporters and they'll be like, well, I, I can't believe only 60% of the Latino vote went Democratic. And I was like, well, we generally only can get 66 or 67%. Like, this is not a huge gulf that we're talking about. And actually, 60% is probably more, uh, probably a better number for Texas. Uh, so you're right, Cliff, it is those two communities. The other thing, I mean, look, and one of the things I like to say is like, most Latinos I know have a Republican brother. Right, and I, I, I've got at least one Republican brother. I think I've got two. I'm pretty sure one of them's lying to me. But I know that like there are those divisions in, in party and in family when it comes to politics. Uh, I'm looking at South Texas right now, and I wanna put some of these numbers in context for people. If you're listening, if you're watching, uh, I'm looking at Hidalgo County. Hidalgo County had a boost in Republican turnout. But I want to put this in perspective. They had 12.8% turnout in 2018. They had 12.9% turnout in 2022. That's a difference of 0.1%. The Republican vote was a 2% turnout in the last midterm election. It was a little more than 3% this time. Democrats were about the same, about 10%, 9%. So a difference of a point. But look at the difference here. 2% to 3%. Sure, that's a 50% increase in turnout, but you're talking about literally one point is 50% increase because they were so low to begin with. And in Cameron County, it's the same story. In Webb County, it's a similar story. So it's all contextualized, right? That's one thing. The other thing is that because of redistricting in Texas, we do not have that many... Con um, swing seats at the congressional level, state senate. I'm not sure we have any at the state senate level and in, in, the, in the Texas House. And in fact, uh, guys, I was looking up swing seats yesterday. I didn't realize that the 7th congressional district in Houston is not really a swing seat anymore. I mean, those numbers look pretty good for Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher, who's the incumbent over there. What this all means is that South Texas is turning into the battleground. They've drawn the districts down there to, to be to, to look a little bit more competitive than they have in the past. You have at least one, maybe two competitive House districts, a competitive congressional district, and a, uh, a competitive state Senate district. So competition drives turnout. And you're seeing that on both sides of the aisle. But even then, it's still very lopsided in favor of Democrats. Does it mean Democrats are going to win the general election? As we've said, primary turnout doesn't mean that were favored to win down there. But that competition changes the dynamics a bit, and that's why you can see Republicans get another point turnout in their primary. It's not anything for us to take for granted, but it's also not anything for them to beat their chest about. Well, I guess when your party is like that white, then you have to make a big deal about like every little inch <laughs> that you get, you know? What was that? There was a report about Republicans <laughs> saying they had more diverse candidates run than ever before, and it was like, <laughs> 40 out of like 30,000 nationwide or something crazy like yeah. that. Well, it shows a lack of uh, the understanding of their own history. Uh, imagine the most diverse slate that they had was during Reconstruction 
when, you know, at the time there were a lot of black Republicans who were running uh, before, you know, they basically ran many African-Americans out of the party and became the monstrosity that they are today. One, you know, because it's his one year anniversary and we just finished the primary uh, two days ago, seven dog weeks ago. I I just want to like hear from the three of you. What is your like aspiration for progressives going into 2020? Like what is your what is like your like Cliff? You dreamed about Ken Paxton facing off against Bush. Uh, What was your good dream about progressives going into into November? Look, I, I'm I'm always the the optimist, and I I find this year to be no different. Um, I I am hopeful going into the general election. I'll say what Stacey Abrams says. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm determined, and I, I I'm excited for progressives to be determined going into this fall. And I do think that we're going to get there. I think people get the stakes. Uh, the the events of the last two weeks, I, I think, have, have been a reminder about the seriousness of of where we are in the world, and uh, I'm I've been impressed with the caliber of the campaign from Beto at the top to folks like Luke Warford, uh, who's running, I think, an exceptionally creative and, and energetic campaign for railroad commissioner, uh, all the way down to our congressionals and our state ledge. So um, I, I'm hopeful that we continue registering voters. Um, uh, one quick fact in 2014, we just cracked 14 million registered voters. Um, recently we just cracked 17 and a half million registered voters. We're thereabouts. So we may get up to 18 million people who are eligible to vote. And I think a lot of those are ours. Wow. Uh, Ed, what is your hope and aspiration for 20, for uh, November? You know, it's similar to Cliff and the determination for me, it's resilience. I think that it's, I want voters to not give up. I want them to keep fighting, to keep moving forward. And I think that voting is starting to become a habit in Texas. And that, that, that heartens me because I think it's, you know, I, you, you guys have heard me say before that democracy is like a muscle. You have to exercise it to keep it healthy. And that doesn't just mean elections. It doesn't just mean the legislative session. It also means your, your activism in between. And voting is an important part, is, is a thread that ties all of those things together. So uh, for me, I, I hope they do. I, I am a progressive, but I am a pragmatist first. So for me, I think the pragmatic side is to hold the line of all the gains we've made in this state over the past three election cycles. We don't know what 2022 is going to look like. We thought it was going to be a difficult year, and it still may be. But it can also be a, a year that we can, we can come out of this okay by protecting the gains we've made the past three cycles, holding the line this year, and then go into 2024 invigorated with, with more chances as we start to see some erosion around those redistricting lines because the lines they've drawn this time, they're not as rigid as they were 10 years ago and they will start to erode quickly. So for me, I think resiliency and is in uh, pragmatism are the, the things that I'm leaning into. I love it. And Diana, what about yourself? Um, I think my hopes and dreams for uh, progressives uh, this year is to, um, you know, really act out a lot of that, uh, you know, resiliency that that we've shown, and to not take um, for granted uh, a lot of folks, uh, you know, and see them as you know base voters. But like Cliff said, everyone deserves to be persuaded, um, and and that's really important. 
Um, I think something I, I dislike hearing is, you know, guilting people into voting and saying, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. The reality is there are a lot of folks that I know, highly educated, you know, family or friends that know mostly what's going on. Um, but again, so many obstacles have been thrown in our way to prevent us from voting. There are a lot of life is happening. We're still in a pandemic that hasn't ended, you know. Uh, we're, a lot of folks are still dealing with the ramifications of being under a Trump presidency. And we're all going through it in many different ways besides what's happening in our world. And so to just, you know, help folks out, you know, family or friends um, by sharing resources on who to vote for, how to vote, those dates, right? Do folks even know there's a runoff election? You know, if you are able to, uh, to, to block walk and feel safe, put on some, you know, sneakers, some tennis shoes and, and walk around. And um, if someone needs help with translation, figure out how to help give them translation services. Um, you know what I mean? Just like reach out. Um, like we've always done here when we're in times of crisis, reaching out to our neighbors and helping folks out because we're all going to get through it together. And I think uh, Ed's cat is <laughs> helping wrap up this episode. <laughs> it's like walking into the view of my screen here. <laughs> I got to say, um, my dream is that we realize that a vote is not a vote. A vote is a payment on a dream that like kids don't get sick because they don't have health care. It's a payment on dream that everyone gets access to abortion, that we can vote without stressing out. And we're not worried about whether the electricity is going to go out because it's 91 degrees or it's 31 degrees, either way. And I just hope that we like really internalize that because it's not just a vote, it's a dream. You know, Diana, Ed, Cliff, Chris in the background, Brett who put those all together, uh, Wesley who's not here with us today, thank you all for your insights today, but really over the entire year, and Glenn as well, uh, and all the other guests who've joined us. To everyone watching and listening, thanks for joining us. Head over to our website, www.progresstexas.org, to follow us on social and subscribe to our email list. And if you're listening to us, subscribe to our podcast in your favorite app and leave us a review. Have a great weekend. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. Everybody. Bye. The Progress Texas Happy Hour is a production of Progress Texas, a rapid response media organization promoting progressive messages and actions. Find us online at progresstexas.org and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Mosier, and our featured music is by Walker Lukens. Please be sure and subscribe to the Progress Texas Happy Hour on the podcast platform of your choice. Take a moment to leave us a review if you've enjoyed the show and be sure and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening and for all you do to press progress forward here in the Lone Star State. We'll see you again next week.